Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. This show will begin shortly after these messages from our advertisers. Advertising is what keeps the show alive. Your support means they'll continue to advertise and the podcast will continue to be free. This statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you in bad pain? You know what I mean. Your knees hurt, your shoulder hurts, and your back. Oh my God, your back. They're constantly killing you. And I'm sure you've tried every pain pill or cream available at the drugstore. Am I right? Well, here is something you haven't tried. Pain Absolve. Pain Absolve is not available in any drugstore. The only way to get it is by calling today. We're so confident that it will work for you that we offer a free bottle with your purchase. No prescription needed. And best of all, each purchase comes with a money-back guarantee. Call now to find out how you can get Pain Absolve and get rid of your pain. Call 800-261-0783. That's 800-261-0783. 800-261-0783. Call today. 800-261-0783. Are you lacking a little something between paranormal and abnormal? You need the Into the Parabnormal store. Now open at parabnormalradio.com. From hoodies to shirts, accessories, and our digital music library, it's all available in the Into the Parabnormal store. Your purchase directly helps support the show. Thanks for buying from the Into the Parabnormal store at parabnormalradio.com. There are all different sizes of businesses. Big business, small business, that awkward growing phase business, the running this thing from my garage business, and the OMG we can't hire fast enough business. Wherever you are in your business journey, HubSpot's powerful but easy-to-use CRM platform grows with you. It lets all of your teams work together seamlessly, whether that's just you and your roommate or colleagues across multiple time zones. Grow better with HubSpot by connecting your people, your customers, and your business. Learn more at HubSpot.com. Five, four, three, two, one. Mothership Connected. When you discuss this type of material, you are opening a portal. There was something that infiltrated her mind, that infiltrated her soul. This stuff is real, Jeremy. I know it's happening. Originating from a remote location, nearly as top secret as Area 51. This is like the perfect venue to talk about this kind of stuff. Somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. What is going on? You're traveling into the paranormal. What is going on is right. 
I mean, I'm like five minutes late on the air tonight because, well, the gremlins were working their way through from wherever they are positioned. Darn you, gremlins. But we're here live. It is into the paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. Tonight on the program, we are... We're going to talk about so much, and in fact, there's a lot of big breaking news in ufology that we really can't waste any time getting into because, you know, the mainstream's not going to tell you about it because the mainstream has an agenda, and quite frankly, this just doesn't fit their agenda. Now, when you hear the last part of the program tonight... You're going to uh, you're going to maybe think that me not being on the air on time tonight uh, was anything like a coincidence or something like that. Just stay tuned, friends. You know, I wouldn't really expect that with the subject material that we're going to talk about tonight that it would go necessarily. 100% smoothly. What am I talking about, friends? Well, two big stories, two huge stories, in fact, have come to light since we last had the opportunity to speak on this program. And they both involve the Navy, the U.S. Navy. And they're pretty damning uh, as far as damning is concerned. And they deal with the, tub- the the subjects of UFOs or unidentified flying objects. Or as, as we can define them as well, UAPs. Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. However you classify them... It seems very, very um, not a coincidence that the U.S. Navy is now starting to take this subject seriously. I said appears. It appears that our U.S. Navy is starting to take this seriously. The UFO subject I'm talking about. Because there's been information that has come out that says the U.S. Navy is drafting new guidelines for pilots and other personnel to report encounters with unidentified aircraft. Quoting from Politico, the first to report this news. It's called a significant new step in creating a formal process to collect and analyze the unexplained sightings and destigmatize them. What you have here, friends, is a situation that we've been documenting on the program for some time. Specifically, we have encounters that pilots, military and otherwise, have been having with aircraft in the airspace. Aircraft in which they cannot identify. Aircraft in which they have never seen before in their lives. And reports of encounters involving air traffic control and pilots who are saying they are encountering this stuff and air traffic control saying, well, we don't see it on radar. 
And, well, you also have situations where stuff is appearing on radar and then yet does not exist or seem to exist in the airspace. Right? And because of the fact that you have high-profile Navy personnel and otherwise saying that they have had these encounters, why? Why would they be doing it? If Why would they be sacrificing their name, maybe their pension, their job, if they're still employed? I mean, just why would they do that? Well... Because they actually saw what they saw. If they didn't see what they saw, they wouldn't go and make it up because the chances are too high of there being repercussions for that. Because of the fact that you have so many pilots now encountering these objects, these unknown, highly advanced aircraft, I will reiterate, highly advanced aircraft... The stuff that Bob Lazar claims to have worked on out at Groom Lake. Highly advanced technology. Whether from whether it's ours or whether it's from the extraterrestrials. And we're still learning how to manufacture it. Whether it was reverse engineered. This is highly advanced stuff. Navy strike groups, other sensitive military formations, facilities have all experienced these encounters with unidentified aircraft. And so for, uh, quoting, for safety and security concerns, the Navy and the U.S. Air Force takes these reports very seriously and investigates each and every report. As part of this effort, it added, the Navy is updating and formalizing the process by which reports of any such suspected incursions can be made to the cognizant authorities. A new message to the fleet that will detail the steps for reporting is in draft. Now... My buddy Clyde Lewis was talking about this on his program last night. He was my guest last week on the program. When when he, when you say, in, and, and we're going to talk about a lot of definitions on this program tonight. We really are. We're going to define some terms and make sure that we are correctly using terms, right? Because we have a dictionary. In fact, in the news with Paranormal News with John Jeter tonight, we've got we've got a story involving... A new word being added to the dictionary that may not be one that you might expect. So lots of definitions here tonight on the program because they're important. And when you break down incursion, it says an invasion or attack, especially a sudden or brief one, an invasion or attack. That is the definition for an incursion. So when you hear incursion... Think of that. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about encounters. And we're talking about an increasing number of them. And we're now, ladies and gentlemen, talking about some action. This is action. And we're now we're now going to uh, investigate this more seriously. Hopefully those of us who talk about this stuff will not be labeled those kooks 
anymore because you see the more it hits the mainstream and it is slowly but surely still not as as fast as we would like that's for sure you've also got another story which should just really have you wondering hmm, i wonder what's hip here as well the navy granting has been granted a patent for an advanced aircraft right so we talk about the navy drafting some new guidelines because of pilots who have had encounters with highly advanced aircraft and now we have the navy obtaining a patent to build an advanced aircraft why would the navy want to build an advanced aircraft well Maybe because they know something that they're not openly telling us, right? In fact, my friend Ty Rogaway, who has been on this beat for many years now, we've talked to him probably close to a half dozen times now, after encounters upon encounters of pilots all over the world with objects in which they cannot identify. And then it kind of of late morphed into the chaff activity that has been going on. And uh, he writes a very, very great piece over at the War Zone, which will get linked up at the website parabnormalradio.com tonight. And it's the, the first line of the story, someone or something appears to have extremely advanced technology and the pentagon is actively changing the nature of the conversation about it well we know that there is advanced technology out there how extreme well more advanced than than our technology that our pilots today are employing let's just say that and certainly the pentagon is actively changing the nature of the conversation about it we can agree about that why would the u.s navy be building advanced aircraft that resembles particularly a flying saucer ufo an inertial mass reduction device that can travel at extreme speeds Well, it might just be uh, because they know that there is something out there that they may have to eventually face head on. And whether it's here or whether it's up in outer space, I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize everything that is happening around us. Because... It is what we've talked about before, about the trickle disclosure, about a little nugget here and about a little nugget there. And when you start to pay attention, it really does add up, and it is undeniable. If you've been following everything that's happened, and I mean everything, since December 16th of 2017, then you know what I'm talking about. And to you and I, we're on the same page.
If you haven't been following what's been happening since December 16th, 2017, then I suggest you head to the news section at paranormalradio.com and click on every story that you can find that we've talked about over the course of the last year and a half now. Because these 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 encounters actually started in the in the latter quarter of 2017, so we've been talking about them about a year and a half now. And it could be very well that, uh, well, like I said, they know something that they're just not willing to come out and openly say. But I'll say this, friends. I will say this. The time is now. These things are coming out. Whether you like it or not, whether you're prepared for it or not, whether you can handle the truth, grab on, hold on tight, because now is the time. We are living in this day and age when this information is coming out, and there's nothing that we can do to stop it. It is going to continue, I believe, to con- to continue to come out, and it may one day reach a screeching halt. but quite frankly, I don't see that day coming. When in your lifetime, I know in my lifetime, there has not been a time that we've had such frequent and such credible reports like we've had. Former military personnel coming public with their reports after all these years, like Commander David Fravor, who, by the way, is going to be making his first public appearance, from what I understand, at the McMinimins UFO Fest in Oregon, which is three weeks from tonight. We'll be there live broadcasting. And while stationed aboard the USS Nimitz, he was the commanding officer of Strike Fighter Squadron 41 and witnessed what is known as the Tic Tac UFO while on a training run over the Pacific Ocean, just about 140 miles southwest of San Diego. Air Intercept Controller Kevin Day, he was aboard the Princeton during the Nimitz incident. It's the one that uh, the video was released of by Tom DeLonge's To the Stars Academy. Now you have this television show that is uh, apparently going to be starting here in just a couple weeks. They said May, so I guess May is this coming week, and it may be starting. I haven't really followed it much, but it is going to be starting here very, very soon. And will it reveal the ultimate proof? Well, it certainly will have a lot of people watching, and I will say that. And many of those will be military personnel. Military personnel coming public to say that they have seen UFOs while they've been defending our borders. And these are credible people, in my opinion, who have lots to lose by speaking out, yet they are doing so because they witnessed the unexplained and they witnessed it firsthand. This is not third party or third person. And we know that there are many more people who are not going to risk it by coming public. But they have stories too and they'll probably take them to the grave. Pilots who have been encountering unidentified aerial phenomenon. When you tie it into the activity that's been happening with the stuff on radar that you cannot physically locate and the chaff, which is affecting radar and making it look like there's stuff happening that actually isn't, 
It makes sense to me that there is some testing going on, which I've been saying for several months now. And it may be involving this technology that the Navy has just patented. This triangle, classic, flying saucer-shaped UFO. We may never know why. We may never, ever be told straight up. But if you follow along and you pay attention... It doesn't take much to really understand what might actually be going on underneath our nose. Well, we're going to swerve into a bit of a direction when we come back, and we're going to talk with a very, very smart man. His name is Ethan Siegel, and we're going to delve deep into a black, a deep, dark black hole. That's coming up next. I'm Jeremy Scott, traveling with you somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Don't miss Pair of Normal News with John Jeter at the bottom of the hour. Holy cow. Only on Into the Pair of Normal. Jonathan Messer created a universe with the flip of a 67-cent Radio Shack switch. Paradox, the debut time travel thriller from E.G. Rowley. After being pulled unconscious from his burning home, Jonathan embarks on an incredible universe-spanning adventure while battling two warring factions, one determined to control his invention, the other bent on its ultimate destruction, fueled by painful memories. John is focused on only one goal. Save his family, no matter the cost. E.G. Rowley draws on his degree in applied science and his love of science fiction to create a dazzling, mind-bending adventure that will challenge the reality of the very universe you live in. Available at egrowley.com in paperback, audiobook, and all-new Jump Cart Audio, exclusively from Jump Master Press. Paradox from E.G. Rowley. So you want to listen to us on your favorite app? There's an app for that. Into, Into the, the Paranormal, Paranormal has apps. And best of all, they're free. Woo-hoo! Listen to the show on Paranormal Radio from TalkStream Live. Tune in, Spreaker, and Radio.net. Have an Alexa device? Into the Paranormal from TuneIn. You can also hear us by making a call to 701-719-9703 or on any of our affiliates at ParabnormalRadio.com. This is Paranormal News. I'm John Jeter. What would a quake on Mars sound like? Well, mystery solved. NASA announced on April 23rd that its Mars inside lander has recorded what is likely the first ever Mars quake. A faint seismic signal was detected April 6th by an instrument on the lander. Scientists are analyzing the data to determine what the source may be. It appears to come from within the planet. Three weaker signals were also detected. By studying what's deep inside Mars, NASA hopes to learn about how Earth and the Moon were formed. Cue the Terminator. Is artificial intelligence a threat to humanity? It's a robot! She's a 
goddamn robot. 57% of the 1,000 people polled by Scott Rasmussen say AI is a threat to all of us. 16% considered a very serious threat. Half of those people say it will lead to massive unemployment. The data seems to back that up as well. With raw data showing that more robots were deployed in the workforce in 2018 than ever before. Connect with the news at ParabnormalRadio.com. I'm John Jeter, and this is Parabnormal News. in line just for you. Call 855-790-8255 or Skype ITP51. Well, you had to be literally living under a rock not to have seen the announcement earlier this month of the release of the first ever picture of a black hole. I mean, it was absolutely amazing and all of the uh, primetime newscasts covered it. It was like For one day or a couple of days, this stuff was just suddenly cool once again. Well, specifically, it was the event horizon of this black hole that was that was captured. And I've just the right guy to talk about this right now. Ethan Siegel is a Ph.D. astrophysicist, an author, a science communicator who professes physics and astronomy at various colleges. His blog starts with a bang, which you'll find on Forbes.com, has received numerous awards, and he's written two books, Treknology, the Science of Star Trek, From Tricorders to Warp Drive, and Beyond the Galaxy, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered the Entire Universe. I'm sure those would be fascinating subjects, but we're here to talk black holes primarily with uh, Ethan Siegel. Welcome to the program, sir. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to go into the parabnormal with you, or in this case, uh, if we're looking at black holes, probably into the most exotic and unusual objects in the entire universe. Yeah, you mentioned unusual because for the most part, these are mostly unknowns, right? I mean, black holes, you know, people have told jokes about them for a long time. I remember a physicist said black holes are where God divided by zero uh, because these are really regions of space where if you were to fall all the way into them and somehow could remain intact and not get destroyed, um, you would really hit the limits of what our best theories of physics allow us to predict. We don't know what happens at the singularities that should lie in the interior of every black hole. How long have you been studying black holes, Ethan? I mean, for me, I got my PhD in physics in 2006, so I'll say I started studying them when I first took general relativity in graduate school back in 2002. So that puts it at, what, 17 years? So 17 years. And is this the biggest black hole discovery in your time? I mean, I would say this is probably one of the three biggest discoveries 
in all of science for this decade. You'll remember at the beginning of the decade, we discovered the Higgs boson. I would say uh, two years ago, they announced the first direct detection of a gravitational wave, maybe three years ago now. Um, I say this is number three. The detection of a black hole's event horizon is a phenomenal undertaking. I mean, if you want to talk about how well do you have to be able to see in order to see the event horizon of the black hole, this would be like taking an orange putting an orange on the moon and measuring the circumference of the orange from a telescope on Earth. That's how good our resolution has to be to image a black hole. What do we, and maybe more more uh, specifically you, believe a black hole to be? I mean, very simply, a black hole is a region of space where there's enough matter, enough mass together in a small enough volume that it's a region of space that nothing can escape from it. So you'll have what we call an event horizon when things reach a high enough density in a a small enough volume of space, you'll create an event horizon, which is to say Anything that crosses over to the inside of the event horizon, it can't get out. Even if it accelerates as fast as you can with as much energy as you can imagine, it can't get out. Even if it were to move at the speed of light itself, it couldn't escape. This idea of black holes has been around for hundreds of years. It goes all the way back to the Reverend John Michel in the late 1700s who theorized them. And it was really only in the 1980s, 70s or 80s, that people were like, you know, I think these astrophysical objects over here, over there, I think these are likely to be black holes. But no one had ever measured them directly. In fact, up until a few years ago, there were still many, many scientists who weren't convinced that black holes actually existed. We have circumstantial evidence for them. We have indirect evidence for them. You know, you measure x-rays coming from a region of space where you have a star orbiting something that exerts gravity but gives off no light, and you're like, okay, maybe. And then you look at our own center of the galaxy and you see stars orbiting something something that has a gravitational mass of four million suns. And again, no light comes from it. And you'll say, uh, yeah, maybe. But there's no substitute for what we actually did to image the event horizon directly and specifically to see radiation coming from a big circular area with a big black disk over it where no light is escaping from it. That really confirms beyond a shadow of a doubt or maybe a silhouette of a doubt that absolutely black holes are real and we've seen one. So how do we know that nothing can escape a black hole has it has this theory been tested well 
What you do is you know you have matter falling into these objects, and on their way in, uh, you know, all matter, as far as we know, is made up of charged particles, things like atomic nuclei and electrons, and when they, this matter falls into a black hole, it heats up, which means it gets ionized, and then you have charged particles, things like electrons or atomic nuclei, moving through space. Those are going to create electric currents. Moving charges make currents, and currents make magnetic fields. So when you have a charged particle in a magnetic field, it's going to emit radiation that you can detect. So we can see it in the infrared, we can see it in the x-ray, we can see it in the radio. Maybe not so good in visible light because the center of the galaxy isn't really that good to see invisible light because there's too much stuff in the way. But we look in these other wavelengths and we see, sure enough, you got it. Stuff is being emitted, radiation is being emitted up until a specific point, which is to say either it gets accelerated and misses the event horizon and doesn't fall into the black hole, or it falls in. Here's the thing. If this were not a black hole, if it didn't have an event horizon, then eventually, when this matter fell in, it would hit something hard. It would hit something that gave it some resistance, like the surface of a star, or the surface of a neutron star, or or some sort of matter that it would run into. When accelerated, heated plasma runs into matter... It would emit a special signature. It would emit a, it would emit a signature of radiation that we don't see. So the fact that we see all the signatures that we expect to exist for a black hole and not the signatures that would be there if this were something other than a black hole, like a dark star or a hard sphere or 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 anything else, that tells us, well, look science is always subject to revision. There are always ways to improve our understanding, and sometimes things surprise us. But based on all the evidence we see, it all points to one specific conclusion, which is Einstein's theory that predicted black holes as an inevitable consequence was dead on, that this was absolutely in line with what we observed. Can you tell us about where this black hole was uh, located? And it's what's known as a supermassive black hole. Can you define that term for us as well? Sure. So if you take a look at a normal boring black hole, the kind that gets made when a very massive star reaches the end of its life and dies, that's going to be a black hole that's similar to the type of black hole that LIGO has seen, where you say, okay, this is going to be somewhere between a few times the mass of our sun up to maybe a few dozen times the mass of our sun, that that's a a typical mass of a black hole. And LIGO has seen those. So far, LIGO has seen a dozen candidate black hole, black hole mergers that fall in that mass range. That's what we call stellar mass black holes. But if you say, well, we're going to make black holes early on in the universe, and we're going to let gravity pull them to the centers of galaxies, and they're going to merge together, and they're going to accrete more matter, and other things like stars or even star clusters are going to fall into them, these black holes have billions and billions of years to grow. 
And they do. The one at the center of the Milky Way has grown to be four million times as massive as our sun. Well, the one that we observe, the first black hole that we have a picture of its event horizon, is at the center of either the first or second most massive galaxy within about 100 million light years of Earth. This galaxy is called Messier 87, and it lives at the center of the Virgo cluster. Here in our local group, the Milky Way and Andromeda are the two biggest galaxies, and we're the only two large galaxies in a tiny group of about 70 dwarf galaxies. Messier 87 lives in the Virgo cluster, which has a about a thousand Milky Way sized galaxies and that whole cluster is maybe is maybe multiple thousands of times as massive as our galaxy. Messier 87 has many many trillions of times the mass of the sun and the galaxy has a black hole at the center that is 6.5 billion solar masses that's a billion with a b it is 1500 times as massive as our own milky way's supermassive black hole so if if anything came into contact with it or got close it would literally be sucked inside forever you know, that's that's a really good point. We have, I'll say this is one of the biggest myths about black holes, is that they suck. As it turns out, black holes, if you were to put like a star or something and and pool ball it, like billiard ball it towards a black hole, it would actually get torn apart by the gravitational forces as it approached the black hole. Only a small percent of that matter is actually going to get eaten or devoured. I think a better picture for how a black hole eats is to remember how Cookie Monster eats cookies. That, you know, you got the om nom nom nom, and you see cookie debris flying everywhere. And you can imagine, even though you know he's a Muppet, you can imagine that, like, some of those cookie crumbs go into his mouth and go down his throat. Black holes are kind of like that. Yeah, things fall into them. It does eat, it does grow, but like 90% or more of the matter that gets sent towards a black hole will actually wind up getting accelerated and ejected. Only a small fraction of the matter that falls into a black hole's vicinity will actually get devoured. What we're seeing, as far as radiation goes, is a mix of the matter that gets ejected and the matter that falls in. But what we're seeing is all of that matter as it gets accelerated towards or away from the black hole. Once it crosses the event horizon, we get no signals from it anymore. Ethan Siegel, my guest, starts with a bang blog on Forbes.com, and we're talking about this first-ever picture of the event horizon of a black hole, which was released in just the past couple of weeks. Now, as we dive further into this uh, topic and, and why this was pictured now, uh, it has certainly been a long time coming for those with the Event Horizon Telescope team to release this photo. Can you maybe take us through, from an outsider's perspective, maybe what's been going on the last few years since this was discovered until the point now when it's released? 
Sure. So if you want to image a black hole, we've already said you need incredible resolution. You need to be able to resolve something when we when we talk about how big things are in terms of angular size, sometimes we talk about it in terms of degrees, like like the moon is about half a degree on the sky. Sometimes we talk about it in terms of arc minutes, where you can take a degree and break it up into 60 pieces, and that's an arc minute. You can break an arc minute up into arc seconds. 60 arc seconds is one arc minute. Now, if you're talking about a telescope like the Hubble Space telescope. Hubble can get resolutions that are a few milli arc seconds or a few thousandths of an arc second, which is phenomenal. But in order to see a black hole's event horizon, you have to go to micro arc seconds. You have to start looking at millionths of an arc minute. I'm sorry, millionths of an arc second, which itself is one-sixtieth of one-sixtieth of one degree. The only way to do that in radio waves, which is where we know these black holes should be emitting their radiation, the only way to do it with these long radio waves is to build a telescope the size of planet Earth or larger. Well, we obviously can't do that. We don't have a spare Earth that we can devote entirely to being one single telescope. So what we did instead with, and this is where the Event Horizon Telescope team is really phenomenal, is they set up eight different telescopes or telescope arrays on five different continents across Earth. And what they did was they said, we're going to bring an atomic clock to each of them. We're going to install special software and hardware on each of them so we can calibrate them, so we can sync them up. And what we're going to do is we're going to, from all these disparate locations on Earth, we're going to observe the same object at the same time. And we're going to observe it for like days and days and maybe even a week on end. So in April of 2017, they did this all over the world. They did this at all the different stations. They did this at the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array in South America. And they did this at the South Pole Telescope at the South Pole. And they did this, at, like I said, they did this in Europe. They did this in 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 uh in Asia they did this in North America they did this in South America they did this in Africa you do this all over the world and then you bring this data together all told for a week of observing it's about 225 terabytes of data for each telescope so you bring all of this together and the team wound up using over 5 petabytes of data to construct it. So this required writing and developing new software and new techniques. It took doing numerical relativity calculations. So you can say, well, when I have matter falling into a black hole, what should I see? And what's it going to depend on? You have matter that can fall in from different orientations. You could have black holes of different masses or different spins or different spin orientations. And you have to bring this all together from all all the different telescopes, and then you have your templates for what you expect to see, what theory predicts, and you want to compare it with what you observe. What we wound up seeing, and this is not really a surprise that it took them two full years of analysis, this is more than 200 scientists involved with the project, um, 
what they wound up seeing was, wow, there's so much we learned. First off, general relativity is right. Einstein's theory is right. Second off, there really is a black hole there. It really does have an event horizon, and the event horizon is the predicted size for a black hole of 6.5 billion solar masses at the center of this galaxy. The gravitational lensing from the curvature of space works the way you expect it to. The Uh, The radiation we see is consistent with a black hole that's rotating and that's rotating close to the maximum rotational speed that black holes are allowed to have. Um, So we've learned a ton that has really confirmed our picture of general relativity and of astrophysics and how matter around a black hole works better than maybe we could have imagined. But this only happened because of an incredibly dedicated team of scientists that's been working on this project for over a decade. These last observations that were taken two years ago that took two years of analysis to produce an image, that's really just the final push to the finish line of something that some people have been working on for more than 20 years. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, and this, you know, proves that it is not it is not quick work. In fact, I was kind of getting worried, and I don't... I, well, not worried necessarily, but I, I did an end of 2017 kind of wrap up show, and and I was talking with a, with an astrophysicist, and uh, we were looking forward to a a the black hole picture, and that was the first I had heard about it at that point, and uh, I was told, okay, sometime in 2018, and then I I go, wait, it, it's 2019, and so I start googling black hole picture and i start finding these news stories that say literally the next week they're going to release a picture of the first black hole uh which i was like wow that's really cool and then it just kind of dominated the media the entire day i know it was probably uh a busy day for you because everybody at least for one day wanted to talk about black holes I mean, for me, that's wonderful. When you get people excited about science, excited about the universe and what we actually know, and willing to think about it and discuss it and look at a picture and ask what it means, and they really want to know the answer, that's an amazing moment for humanity. That's an amazing moment that brings people together to say, you know what, there are all sorts of things that we squabble over, that we argue over, but this is really an example of something that can only happen happen when we work together without borders and pool our resources to do something far, far greater than any of us can do individually. That, that for me, is, is really the human impact that this has. As far as why it took so long, remember, this was not the only black hole that they were looking at. The black hole at the center of our Milky Way is just as big on the sky as the super ultra-massive one at the center of Messier 87. But the reason that that was the first image that was released is because light takes time to go from end to end. Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, which means you have to look at how big is my black hole. For the one that we release, that we observe, that we've all seen the image of now, it takes around a day for light to go across the diameter of that black hole. So if you looked at it in detail, you would see there are actually four images, one from I think April 4th and one from April 5th. 
and then another one like April 10th and another one like April 11th. And the one on the 4th and the 5th look really similar to each other. And the one on the 10th and 11th look really similar to each other. But from the 4th and the 5th to the 10th and the 11th, there have been major, major changes. Well, the problem is the one at the center of our galaxy, which is the one that most people, including me, were betting they were going to choose because it's 1,500 times less massive. That means light travels across it and we see changes in it on timescales that are 1,500 times faster. So instead of things looking a little different after a day, things look a little different after about a minute. And that's why I believe they chose to release this nice, static, easy image of Messier 87 first. That one took two years to make sure they're getting all the details right. And you have to because you cannot be too careful whenever you're doing something brand new for the first time. I imagine that sometime in the next six to 12 months, we'll see that image of the second black hole of the one at the center of our galaxy, but I also bet you it's going to be a lot more complicated than the relatively straightforward one we saw last week. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that second one. So there's another one to come, and might it take perhaps longer uh, because it is more involved to get that one released than this one did? I think I think it is going to be a little bit longer, but I don't think it's going to take another two years. I think you know, once you have the first one in the bag, that's where you refine your techniques and you learn what you're doing for the first time. Although I'm not a part of the team, I'm very confident in the team that is working on this. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, I would say mm, before Halloween, we didn't have our image of a second black hole, of a much closer one here within our own Milky Way. That's absolutely awesome. Ethan Siegel, my guest, um, where we can find you at Forbes.com, anywhere else? I would say if you're looking for me, I'm Starts With a Bang. I'm on Twitter. I'm Starts With a Bang Facebook page on Facebook. I'm on Tumblr. And for those of you who really like what I do, uh, I'd love your support. I'm on Patreon at Starts With a Bang. Yeah, it's not every week that we get to delve into a black hole. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on into the pair of normal. Jeremy, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure as well. And we'll continue right after this. Like this show? There's plenty more of them. Subscribe to Into the Pair of Normal for a few dollars a month and never miss a show. Check it out at pairofnormalradio.com. Now available, Beyond UFOs, the science of consciousness in contact with non-human intelligence from the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free Foundation. Beyond UFOs presents astonishing data on the world's first multi-language academic research study on over 4,200 experiencers in more than 100 countries. This data contradicts what is circulating in mainstream ufology. Beyond UFOs is a must-read. Find it at experiencer.org, Amazon, and wherever great books are sold. 
Life Change Tea. Log on to GetTheTea.com. Find out why so many people reorder this product. The results will blow you away. If you have health problems and need help, order Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. If it didn't work, no one would reorder. We sell a one-year supply at a discounted rate. Two eight-ounce glasses a day helps keep sickness away. Read the numerous testimonies of how thousands and thousands have been helped by drinking Life Change Tea. Many talk show celebrities are not only talking about the tea, but using it. Feel good, lose a little weight, and enjoy your life at GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. You can also call our friendly staff at 928-308-0408. That's 928-308-0408. Life Change Tea. All natural, USA, no caffeine, great tasting detox drink. Join the leaders who have taken control of their health. GetTheTea.com. We don't just report the news the same way as everyone else. We make it. This may be evidence of a giant undiscovered planet. Black hole could form and suck everything in and around it. Formation of lights or a massive object with multiple lights. And I'm not, not delusional. Could it be aliens? Paranormal news with John G. This time, it's war. Only on Into the Paranormal. It can always be aliens. Exploring the possibilities of the subjects you've always wanted to know, and those you never knew existed until now. Into the Pair of Normal with Jeremy Scott. You know what? We were talking about black holes, and there were two two things I wanted to bring up real quickly here. Uh, that story we had last week uh, about uh, whether or not you could get rescued from a black hole if you were ever sucked inside. Um, I don't know that I would want to sign up to try, uh, but, you know, I guess there's a possibility that, I mean, they would have to know first and foremost that you were missing inside of a black hole. So that's your first problem is letting anybody know that you're missing and you're within a black hole. Um, And then how you get that communication through and then, of course, how they get to you. Well, that's a... It's a completely different story. Um, so there's always that. And, and you know, it's very possible as well um, that extraterrestrials could be living within a black hole. In fact, there's a Russian, a Russian cosmologist uh, and his team at the Institute for Nuclear Research of the Russian Academy of Sciences who have proposed that alien civilizations with sufficiently advanced technology could hypothetically navigate through a black hole's event horizon, where that picture was taken, they could navigate through a black hole's event horizon without being destroyed. Again, I don't know that I would want to necessarily give that a try. 
My next guest is Glenn Kreisberg. He's here to present his comprehensive research into hundreds of lost, forgotten, and misidentified megalithic stone structures in northeastern America. He's an author, outdoor guide, radio engineer, who researches archaeoastronomy and landscape archaeology in the Hudson Valley and Catskill Mountains of New York. His books include The Mysteries of the Ancient Past, Lost Knowledge of the Ancients, and Spirits in Stone. He served two terms as Vice President of the New England Antiquities Research Association, Antiquities, that would be, and studied archaeoastronomy and archaeoacoustics. He's founder of the nonprofit Overlook Mountain Center which is at overlookmountain.org. It's located in Woodstock, New York. That's where he lives with his wife and his two teenage children. Tell us about what these monuments maybe are made of, how big they are, when we believe that they were constructed, and then later on we'll get into the means in which they were constructed. I know that's a, a lot to get into, but since we kind of had a, our conversation truncated, let's get right into it if we can, Glenn. Sure, I'll describe what these are. In the Northeast, what we have is um, hundreds and hundreds of miles of stone walls. We've got thousands of what are called Manitou Hasanash, which is spirit stones. And these could be, um, if they were in Northwest megalithic Europe, they'd be called Cairns or Dolmen. Um, uh, some of them um, a few meters across, some of them, uh, you know, 100 feet in length and, 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 um, you know, a dozen feet tall. Um, so they're, they're large stone constructions made out of native stone. So depending on where they're constructed, if they're in, uh, New Hampshire, you would expect granite. If they were in, uh, the Catskill Mountains in New York, you would expect bluestone, a uh, type of gray wax shale, which is native to the Catskills. So, um, this is a, 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 a activity that was carried out by almost all uh, ancient humans around the world, building in stone, building monuments in stone for thousands of years, uh, various sizes, various configurations, but usually representing their belief system, their worldview, um, which was in many cases three-dimensional, meaning that these constructions on the surface of the earth made of stone, um, or if, if you're in the Midwest, they may be made of earth or mounds, but that there's a connection both to the world above the celestial or supernatural world of the of the heavens, but also the underworld um, below the ground, uh, the, the the world of of uh, water and of serpents and other um, types of um, spiritual creatures. So they had this three dimensional worldview, which is very much universal. And how far do these date back? What's the oldest one that you found? Well. That's the controversy, and that's why it's generally not accepted in the Northeast by academics and scholars that these are thousands of years old, because stone piles and stone walls are very difficult to date. Unless you have artifacts that are associated with them that can be dated, um, made of material that can be carbon-14 dated or um, using other methods, it's very difficult. Now, there are some new technologies that are coming around, such as uh, OSL, optical stimula stimulated luminescence, where you can take soil samples and date them based on when sunlight was last um, shown on it. You know, you can analyze the particles within the soil, the the, um, the quartz and the, and the micas, and see when they last 
receive sunshine. So to answer your question, it's difficult to say. Some of them have been speculated to be thousands of years old. Uh, I believe some of them are remnants of the uh, built by the very first people who came into our region. And now this would have been uh, 15, uh, 18,000 years ago, perhaps. And they um, came from areas where they had already developed a, a sophisticated belief system where they had already developed a tradition of building in stone. And they brought it here from where they, um, you know, where they came from, which depending on the theory you follow, it could be Northwest Europe, it could be uh, Siberia across the land bridge, it could be uh, across the oceans on, on um, rafts following the edge of the, of the glaciers. And so when did you first come across one of these uh, stone structures? Well, you know, anybody walking in the woods in the Northeast is going to come across these things, piles of stones, old stone walls, old foundations, um, unusual set-up boulders. Uh, I've always seen them. I'm, I'm an outdoor guide, so I've always spent a lot of time in the woods, and I've always seen these things. And like most people early on, I just considered them all colonial or early American. It wasn't until I got involved with a site uh, here in Woodstock on Overlook Mountain where a cell tower was being proposed, and there were people who lived around the cell tower uh, site uh, where it was being proposed, who were saying that there were these Native American stone piles that had to be looked at. And, um, of course, they were dismissed as being just kind of dime a dozen, nothing to see here, uh, colonial or early American walls, which there are plentiful. But um, but these were something different. When I went and looked at them and when some of the folks from NERA, the New England Antiquities Research Association, they came and looked at them. They said that they believed that they were Native American and that they were maybe burials or other type of memorial um, constructions related to their spiritual beliefs. So that really got me interested in, uh, you know, trying to understand, you know, it was the mystery. There was, a, a, to me, a legitimate mystery in our woods. Uh, not all these stone things were early American or colonial. Some of them might have been here much earlier. And there's actually some good evidence to back that up. There was a, um, a U.S. census in 1880. Part of that census was what was called the Agricultural Stone Fence Survey of New England. And what they discovered and reported was that there was over 240,000 miles of stone wall. So that's enough, you know, to reach to the moon or to wrap around the earth 10 times. And it couldn't have all have been built in the 200 years prior to 1880, when this census was conducted uh, in that colonial and early American period, there just wasn't enough of a population to have built that amount of stone construction. So some of it, um, and I believe a, pre a pretty good portion of it, was already here. It was pre-existing, had been uh, built over the thousands of years that Native Americans had occupied and, and dominated and um, exploited the resources of, of the Northeast. How did you get involved in researching them? And, and then walk us through your methodology for doing that as well, if you wouldn't mind, Glenn. Sure, Jeremy. Um, well, I'm a, a radio frequency engineer, and I actually I work on the, on the networks, on the cell networks and the wireless networks. And um, it occurred to me, I was actually reading a, a Graham Hancock book, uh, Underworld, and there was a picture of the temples on Malta, and one of them looked remarkably like an 800 megahertz radio frequency uh, antenna pattern, the kind of propagation pattern that would come out from an antenna. 
it looked almost identical to it in the bird's eye view. I thought that was kind of odd and unusual, so I, I wrote an article about um, and, and, and started to research uh, whether ancient cultures may have had knowledge of the electromagnetic spectrum. And, uh, and I found quite a bit of evidence, kind of iconic and architectural and, and symbolic um, references to different types of waveforms and, and um, electromagnetic uh, properties that were expressed in, in um, kind of allegorical or symbolic ways. You know, before the Greek civilization came up with uh, technical and scientific terminology, everything that was observed in, in nature um, by humans was described um, by allegory or symbolically in stories. So they had to be decoded. But I found a lot of information that, that seemed to back up the theory that ancient people did have um, knowledge of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum and of the properties of, of uh, propagation. And I, th I, th I thought that was very fascinating. So as an engineer working, uh, I'm familiar with GIS and GPS. And as I started to um, record and document the locations of sites in the Catskills and the, and, uh, the Hudson Valley and the Schwangunk Mountains in upstate New York, I started to see a pattern. Because what I would do is I would plot these locations, their GPS coordinates, and I would do a GIS survey to understand the relationship between the site locations and the different features that are found at these sites. So you can, um, through using GIS methodology, you can sort and filter so you can see different patterns of, of um, distribution, of concentration of the different features of the sites, uh, some of them being are they Karen sites or are they wall sites or are they standing boulders or are they uh, aligned with each other in a certain way? And when I put them on the map and started to um, analyze these patterns, what I found out is that many of them are connected over great distances and also over short distances, line of sight, um, on bearings that match up with the solstice, sunrise, and sunset on the longest and shortest days of the year, and also the equinox. So to me, this was very revealing and, and um, confirming that this pattern was man-made and not just, you know, accidental, these things on the landscape. That's fascinating. We'll continue our conversation with Glenn right after this. I'm Jeremy Scott, traveling with you somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Glenn Kreisberg, author of Spirits in Stone, right after this. Think you've heard it all? Just wait until Into the Paranormal continues. Help us! Our house, it has no internet. Wherever you have phone service, you can take Into the Parabnormal with you. Call 701-719-9703 and listen wherever you are. Our listen line is courtesy of TalkStream Live. Show your friends how cool listening to talk radio is on your phone. Call 701-719-9703 to travel somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Into the Parabnormal. 
Individuals and businesses with tax problems listen carefully. Do you feel like you're losing control over your finances? If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services and take advantage of the Fresh Start program and new laws that may allow us to negotiate a settlement for the lowest amount possible. Our team of tax attorneys and enrolled agents can stop collections and get you protected so you can take control of your financial future. Tax Mediation Services is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call now for a free case review and a price protection guaranteed quote. Call Tax Mediation Services now at 800-319-4094. That's 800-319-4094. 800-319-4094. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at Parabnormal Show to stay up to date. Join our group for live chats, news, and discussion on everything somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Send us a direct message through the contact section at paranormalradio.com or by text at 818-672-6865. Stay connected into the paranormal. This is Paranormal News. I'm John Jeter. What the heck is rattling Cleveland, folks? What I've heard is I've heard like a loud bang, like a boom. People are reporting unexplained booms, rattling houses, and flashes of light happening at night for the past few weeks. It has been recorded on security systems. Almost sounds like a bomb at times. News 5 Cleveland reports that a city council member has vowed to look into these events. Let's not hold our breath, though. The term cryptid has gone viral. Well, okay, maybe not. But it has been added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Cryptid is defined as an animal such as Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster that has been claimed to exist, but never proven to exist. I, I beg to differ with you on that one. I've seen old Squatch. He's my buddy. The term was uh, reportedly first used in 1983. The editors of the dictionary say words are added when they become part of the common vernacular. I guess that means a cryptid is now mainstream. Connect with the news at ParabnormalRadio.com. I'm John Jeter, and this is Paranormal News. of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. You're traveling into the paranormal with Jerry Scott. And we're back with Glenn Kreisberg. He's author of Spirits in Stone, and we've been talking with him about these stone structures, about these megalithic 
stone structures and about how he believes they were man-made and not done as an accident because when he started analyzing and 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 plotting these out um mapping and analyzing the patterns uh, he came to the realization as he was telling us right before the break that they really do uh match up with the solstice and with the equinox can you uh can you expand upon that please uh, glenn uh, sure. Well, there's a line known as the Hamanasset Line. It runs from the very tip of Long Island, a place called Fort Pond near Montauk Point. It's an ancient Indian burial ground. And there's a large stone there called Council Rock, a very large megalith that was used by the Mohawk tribe for centuries as a gathering place. So from that that location, that stone, if you were to plot a winter solstice sunrise, summer solstice sunset bearing, which is reciprocal, so it's a straight line. And it runs at about, well, from the, from the point of Long Island, it would run at about 302 degrees true, about 318 degrees magnetic in the northwest direction. And all along that line, you're going to find these, these stone constructions, cairns and walls, and unusual boulders that have been set up and oriented to the four directions, the four cardinal directions. But if you take it and you plot that line from Council Rock up to a stone in the Catskills known as Devil's Tombstone, another very large megalith that um, bears the name Devil because the the early Dutch Calvinist settlers uh, recognized this as a place that the Native Americans did their religious activities, which, of course, those Dutch would have considered devil worshiping. So that line, that winter solstice sunset bearing from Long Island, all along it are these amazing constructions that were built in the woods probably thousands of years ago, perhaps four thousands of years, uh, by a, a, um, a civilization that recognized the movements of the sun and, and also the stars and the moon and built these monuments um, not only to connect them to through their spiritual belief system to the heavens, but also to understand the movement of the sun and where it rose on the horizon on the longest and where it set on the shortest um, days of the year. And that was important to them for understanding their cycles of time and, and planting and ceremonies and holidays and all of that. Of course, solstice... Um, Recognizing the solstice and its position and when it came and went uh, was probably the oldest or the first holiday, holy day, that humans uh, celebrated. So it's a very strong spiritual connection to um, to the position of the sun and, and our relationship to it. Yeah, that is really, really fascinating. And so, you know, why couldn't that have been done by any other race besides man? Um, races in, as in what, what, what races other than man are you suggesting? Well, some believe that there is an extraterrestrial race, but you know, any other race, you know, um, and maybe it was, you know, um, I don't know, maybe it was them, maybe it was the, you know, the cavemen. Well, you know, the Neanderthals. What, 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 what I'd be, what I'd be willing to entertain and there's some very fascinating evidence and publications and books and researchers who look into this um, theory of the giants, 
you know, there were many skeletons to have been reported from digs uh, under mounds, stone mounds and, and mounds in the Midwest, earth mounds, by pretty reputable university archaeology departments, University of Chicago, um, I, I believe um, maybe Columbia University, sent teams of archaeologists, and this was in the late 1800s, 1880s, 1890s, even see reports in the early 1900s, these very large skeletons being excavated from these, these mound sites and then going into the possession of the Smithsonian Institution and then, you know, kind of being lost track of when, when these researchers are, are trying to um, kind of follow up on some of these news reports that are very well documented. And, of course, most of it is, is dismissed as hoax. Um, a lot of these small Midwestern towns, to get their names on the map and to get a museum, they would, you know, fabricate uh, these skeletons or claim that there was a, fa a, a find when in fact there was nothing or exaggerate a, a, a find that was, um, you know, documented. Uh, but there is, there is a pretty legitimate case to be made that some of these um, extreme examples that were done by reputable uh, um, archaeology departments and then went to the Smithsonian disappeared. And what they appeared to show and support was that there was a race of giants, you know, large humans, seven feet tall, nine feet tall, that roamed the uh, um, Western Hemisphere. Uh, you see reports all the way down to Patagonia in South America of very, very large humans in prehistoric times. So they could have been the original mound builders, the original uh, stone workers who uh, who inhabited the, the uh our country uh, in in uh, ancient times. Um, you know, Graham Hancock, who I'm a, a great friend of and follower of, he has a book that just came out a few days ago called America Before, which uh, in his theory, um, the the uh, evidence and the, and the link to the lost ancient civilization that he believes existed, a mother culture, uh, was here in the in, in America. And, and that's what his, his newest book is documenting. And, of course, there's been some very interesting finds in the last couple of years, again, by reputable archaeologists. I'm, I'm talking about the Century find in California, where they dated tools to 130,000 uh, years ago. So this is, you know, stretching the window way back prior to what most uh, mainstream archaeologists and scholars would accept as when humans came into the Western Hemisphere, which is getting pushed back further and further from 12 to 15 to 18 to 20, 25,000 years. But, um, but the claim that 130,000 years ago, again, that goes against what is uh, generally accepted. But it's, but it's um, you know, something I think is quite possible. Are these stone structures correlating a message in your mind? Well, I think they, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they represent this... Um, sophisticated three-dimensional world view uh, of an underworld, uh, you know, inhabited by, by serpents and, and um, creatures of the underworld, the dark world, and the uh, celestial world, the heavens, the world of the supernatural above our heads and the stars, and the connection between those, um, the, the plane of the living where we exist as humans and where we build our structures on Earth. I think there is a strong... Um, uh, need for humans to have this worldview, to understand that we're not, uh, you know, that this material um, plane of the existence that we know is just a very small part of, of all of existence, of everything there is to know, uh, of course, which encompasses much, much more than just the material 
world. If we talk about physics and quantum physics and string theory and what's possible um, theoretically in, in quantum physics, uh, you know, it goes way beyond what we know in our material world. So I think it was their way, as I said, of describing symbolically their understanding of these higher principles of the universe involving what today we would call quantum um, quantum physics and quantum mechanics and, and the types of related subjects. So, you know, I think there is a, an important message. And I think it's also a message that relates um, very much to the rise and fall of human consciousness, which does not seem to be a linear thing based simply on evolution, but there seems to be um, a pattern superimposed upon evolution, almost like a curly cue. As we go up, we also go back and up and back and up and back through these cycles that are sometimes, again, described in ancient mythologies and the ancient Vedic scriptures of the East Indians, of the Mayan cultures in Central America. They all talk about these vast cycles of time connected to celestial motion that involve the rise and fall of civilization, of technology, and, and of human consciousness over time. Um, how how would they be able to lift these stones into place? Well, the the stones in the northeast, and there are some um, chambers in in the Hudson Valley that have quite large stones, uh, you know, several tons. Uh, but I've never thought that that humans who um, are well organized and and have you know, manpower at their disposal could move large stones. They've always seemed to be able to do it throughout history when needed to. Uh, I think it was a tremendous effort, and it took a lot of ingenuity, and it took a lot of, um, as I said, manpower and working as a team. But I think, um, you know, if you need to move a, a very large stone, and we're talking 20 tons or 50 tons or 100 tons, it's pretty much been shown, I think, uh throughout history that humans have been able to develop these techniques. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not disputing that there could be some technology and, and technique that we don't understand yet, maybe involving so sound, because I'm a big proponent of, of um, archaeoastronomy and, and how ancient people used sound in various methods for various uh, purposes. And I know there have been some interesting reports of large stones being levitated uh, with sound. And certainly sound has been used to, um, as a weapon to destroy things made of stone. Um, but I think when it came to how large stones like Stonehenge um, or the pyramids, uh, you know, it was, it was good old human ingenuity and, and muscle and, um, you know, and, and brain power combined to, uh, to get the job done. Now, it's, not, it's you know, I, I don't, I, I don't think it, they're mutually exclusive that there couldn't have been visitations from um, extraterrestrials that had knowledge that they may have passed on. I, you know, I don't rule that out. I just think that they're not mutually exclusive. You could have both humans who had the ability uh, to move large stones and, and, you know, visitations in ancient times of, of uh, extraterrestrials that, you know, had, the, had technology to do the same thing. Maybe they got a kick out of watching the humans do it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, uh Maybe that's very possible, um, you know, uh, you know, because they could probably do it better, but they get a kick out of watching us uh, struggle to try to do it. Um, never really thought of it that way. What about 
what about the purpose of these sites? Uh, what purpose do they serve? Well, uh, uh, I mean, it depends. I, I think they, in in many cases, um, they they served various purposes. I don't think they were ever built for just one purpose. Um, but I, I think in many cases, kind of, if you're looking for a, a bottom line common denominator for um, ancient sites around the world, stone sites, um, spiritual stone sites, like like I talk about in my book. Um, I, I would probably say that that common denominator would be uh, achieving an altered state of consciousness somehow through interacting with that site and with those with those stones. And when I say an altered state, I mean through um, meditation, through chanting, through communal activities, church, you know, church activities, if you will, because I believe in the Northeast many of these Ancient stone sacred sites were considered churches by the people who built them, spiritual centers where they carried out their spiritual practices, which involved techniques that would ultimately alter their state of consciousness and allow them to communicate with other realms. Um, the supernatural, you know, perhaps interpreted today as the extraterrestrials, um, but other realms of existence, it would allow them to... Uh, to open a portal and pass through uh, to attain this type of communication. And, and you know, again, it falls into another uh, activity or, or common denominator, which I believe is shamanism. Uh, I believe that was the type of practice that was performed at many of these locations where there was a facilitator um, who would uh, get the group or the individuals participating to have their consciousness altered and go through this portal or initiation where they would receive information from a another realm of beings. So, very, you know, very interesting stuff. If you've ever read any of uh, Rick Strassman's stuff, DMT, the spirit molecule, um, it, it, you know, goes into this in quite depth, in depth. Are there any other patterns you've been able to uh, uncover uh, as a result of your work? Um, well, again, the archaeostronomy and the, the, um, what we mentioned at the beginning, the landscape archaeology, understanding the physical connection between these sites. That's really the, the biggest pattern that's jumped out to, jumped out to me. Um, that if you see how these sites line up on the map, there's a grid or a, a, a pattern on the landscape connecting these sites, all related to the solstices, uh, and, and the equinoxes, um, sunrise and sunsets on the longest, shortest, and the equal days of the year. So that's that's the predominant pattern. Um, and then, again, the pattern that's worldwide, along with that, is this uh, connection to the three-dimensional worldview and the ability to communicate uh, to other realms through through uh, meditation or alter, altering your state of consciousness. So those are, I would say, the three uh, main, main patterns. Um, uh, you know, one one of the, I guess, another really fascinating aspect of these sites, and I, I kind of briefly touched on it, is, and I guess we could consider it another pattern, is the relationship to their, these cycles, uh, the great cycles of time, and and how these sites may represent a connection to those. Um, if we look a little bit deeper into what I call pre, pre-Christian mythology, because a lot of this mythology is represented in Christian symbolism, 
such as the uh, the tree of life and the serpent that's wrapped around the tree and the story of the of the serpent and and how it relates to the tree of life. If we look at the symbolism in that, to me, um, what we see is that the the uh, tree or the staff is representing the axis of the earth and where that axis points to in the sky is the point we call celestial north. This was very important to ancient cultures worldwide, whether it was the ancient Greeks or the ancient Chinese or the Persians or the Celts. Um, uh, all of these uh, ancient cultures had this understanding of, of how um, the axis of the earth and celestial north and the relationship of the, of the circumpolar constellations kind of mirrored, um, the, again, this rise and this fall of, of civilization. If you go back into the most ancient cultures, and we're talking about the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans, they all devolved from earlier times. They were greater, more advanced, more accomplished in their earlier incarnations, and then they, over time, degraded. And, and you know, what accounts for that? And a lot of the mythology believes that it has to do with the relationship between uh, celestial north, the point in the sky where the Earth's axis points, and the constellations that um, are always spinning around it. Now, celestial north is not a fixed point. It actually scribes a very slow circle in the sky um, over 25 or 26,000 years that we call the precession of the equinox. And this, again, was something that uh, was not lost on, on ancient, in fact, preliterate cultures. If you go back into the cultures before there were any writing um, or, or documenting of information, their mythologies all talk about this um, relationship between the Earth's axis, celestial north, and, and the constellations. And to me, the most important constellation uh, of the circumpolar constellations is Draco, the serpent or the snake constellation. We're all very familiar with the zodiac, uh, the, the 12 constellations that ring the equator, but the constellations that ring celestial north are just as important, and the, the or, or even more important perhaps, because the relationship between those uh, constellations and that position of, of celestial north, which is always drifting due to precession, um, to, merit, to many ancient cultures dictated the rise and then the fall of of great civilizations and not just um you know the the civilization itself but the consciousness and the technology and everything connected to that civilization would decline as the relationship changed so in many ways the change in that relationship portended something catastrophic uh to to a culture when they would see it happening over time Glenn, what about your some of your favorite sites? I know there's uh, one there in the Catskill Mountains, the Wall of, of the Manitou. Uh, you want to tell us about that one maybe here as we round out this hour? Sure. Well, the Wall of the Manitou is, is actually a, a, a geologic um, formation. It's about a 14-mile wall. It's an escarpment that's the eastern edge of the Catskills that, as it drops down into the Hudson Valley. Uh, but it was referred to as the Wall of the Manitou or the Spirit Wall by the native tribes because they believed that these spirits lived in the mountains at the summits and um, that to attain this spirituality, you had to basically get up the Wall of the Manitou and it had different 
spiritual levels. Um, some say nine, some say seven levels of, of spirituality to get to, to the summit. But uh, again, along this geologic wall, this escarpment, um, which is bisected, by the way, by the Hamanasset line, which I mentioned earlier, which comes up from Long Island and goes through the Catskills, and it, it comes right to the wall of the Manitou, and along it and on the wall and at the north end and the southern terminus of this 14-mile geologic escarpment, you have these stone um, constructions, these Manitou Hanasesh, or these spirit stone sites of serpent walls and effigy walls um, that look like snakes and serpents. And in the case of the Lewis Hollow site, which is at the south end of the wall of the Manitou, you have a petroform built of large cairns that mirrors this, the, in the sky the serpent or the, or the snake effigy, uh, excuse me, uh, constellation um, Draco. So um, this was this was a very important um, aspect of this site on Overlook Mountain, and, and you can read about this at, at the website overlookmountain.org uh, about the serpent walls and the Draco effigy um, petroform, which which uh, I believe. And again, if you put in, um, if you use uh, astronomy software like Starry Night Pro or Solarium. Uh, there are some very good astronomy programs, and if you put in the coordinates of the Lewis Hollow site, what appears in the sky is Draco, the serpent of the north, um, the constellation that's always spinning around celestial north. So I think a lot of these sites, and certainly the, the uh, Lewis Hollow site on Overlook Mountain, was marking celestial north kind of as a beacon for anybody in the viewshed of that mountain uh, as far back as there were people in that viewshed. They could look to the mountain and understand that it marked uh, where Celestial North was in the sky. Um, so uh, certainly Mani uh, uh, the Wall of the Manitou is one of my um, favorite areas, one of my favorite sites, and there's many sites associated with it. And just quickly, I'll mention another site, which is um, Dan's Camera Point on the on the Hudson River, um, a few uh, about uh, 30 or 40 miles north of Manhattan on the Hudson. There's a large point of land called Danskammer Point it used to be known as um, Devil's Danskammer, which is Danskammer in Dutch means dance chamber, and it was named the Devil's Dance Chamber by Henry Hudson's crew when he sailed up the Hudson River in 1609 on his third voyage of discovery looking for the Northwest Passage. He discovered the Hudson River, named for him, and he sailed up it and his crew saw a large group of Native Americans uh, doing a dance, having a ceremony on this point of land, Danskammer Point. So they named it the Devil's Dance Chamber, of course, because the Dutch sailors on Henry Hudson's ship believed they were watching devil worshipping. But the point is, is from that point of land, and I always was fascinated by it, I, I plotted uh, and realized that the creek across the river, Wappinger's Creek, um, the mouth of it was a perfect alignment with that point of land for a summer solstice sunset and a winter solstice sunset. And it was, uh, excuse me, a summer solstice sunrise and a winter solstice sunset, and it also was in alignment with the rise of Pleiades on the summer sunrise and with the alignment of the galactic center on the winter solstice sunset. So this was the reason why that point of land was so important to the Native Americans and why they were carrying out their uh, spiritual activities when Henry Hudson sailed by and noted it in, in the log of the, of the half moon. So... Um, the, you know, two of my favorite sites, uh, and I, I like relating those stories because it's very confirming to see how the um, how the astronomy works out, and it, it answers a lot of questions about 
why these places were chosen by the natives and by the ancient population um, for their relationship to the sky. Hang with us, Glenn Kreisberg, author of Spirits in Stone, The Secrets of Megalithic America, Decoding the Ancient Cultural Stone Landscapes of the Northeast, and he is, as well, the co-founder of the Overlook Mountain Center in Woodstock, New York. Back after the top of the hour with him. Don't venture too far. You might not make it back into the pair of normal. of overpaying for the little blue pill? What if you could get the exact same results for just a fraction of the price guaranteed? Well, now you can with sildenafil, the active ingredient in the blue pill. With 20 milligram generic sildenafil tablets, you get the exact same results for less than $2 per pill. pill. And again, again, the results results are guaranteed. guaranteed. That's right. Absolutely guaranteed results for a fraction of the cost of the little blue pill. So give your wallet a break and call us toll-free at 800-367-9583 to get your generic sildenafil delivered discreetly to your door. And of course, while saving hundreds of dollars, you'll also be saving time by saying goodbye to those long, embarrassing pharmacy lines once and for all. Again, just call 800-367-9583 to get your generic sildenafil with a 100% money-back guarantee. Getting your pills doesn't get any easier or cheaper than this, so call Call 800-367-9583 now. In North America, call toll-free at 855-790-8255. Outside North America, you can dial into the pair of normal at 503-506-0396. All right, back with uh, Glenn Kreisberg, and he is author of Spirits in Stone, and we've been talking about these stone landscapes that he believes were man-made. Now, he's a radio engineer. He's an outdoor guide, so he gets out a lot, and he's seen many of these sites. Do you get a particular feeling either way when you visit these sites, Glenn? Uh, I do. I I get a a profound sense of awe, really, um, when I'm in these uh, site locations. Many times you're you're in places where there are effigies, serpents or snake walls, uh, turtle effigies, and you know that you're in an ancient site that was uh, connected to the land and connected to the people on the land thousands of years ago, uh, representing their belief system. And and um, it does it, it it kind of pours into you, and you you do feel uh, a connection and a and a great sense of of awe and respect. Yeah, I, I I can imagine that, and respect for something that was created yeah. by uh you know uh, by because I don't know if I could I don't know if I could uh, create one of those uh, structures. That, I mean, the people that that you, you were around at that time that created those structures, you know, they were used to that kind of living uh, because you know uh, that was that was you know, prehistoric, uh, you know, before you know uh, life as we know it. Well, you know it uh, it. In this site at Lewis Hollow, uh, it's a serial use site. So there, you know, many people used it for many different purposes over vast periods of time, going from the earliest uh, occupants, and there are native uh, rock shelters that um, are documented there to, uh, I believe, about 5,000 years ago. Um, so, uh, 
you know, there, there, there was a presence on the land all, all that time. But one of the more recent activities were bluestone quarry workers, Irish immigrants in the uh, mid-19th century, uh, up until the advent of cement in the 1890s, throughout the 1800s, the bluestone was quarried, and it was a hard life. These bluestone quarry workers who uh, came from Ireland toiled in these quarries with manual labor, um, uh, re, you know, removing stone, dressing stone, moving stone down to the river um, for it to be shipped. And a lot of the Catskill Mountain bluestone was used for uh, curbstones and sidewalks in Manhattan, in New York City, uh, before um, cement came out. So uh, it, it, one of the theories that an, a local archaeologist had was that a lot of these stone constructions up on the mountain were built by the Irish quarry workers uh, in their time off. And to me, that seemed pretty ridiculous because why would these guys who worked their asses off all day in the quarries when they were done, why would they, you know, continue to work moving stone? Uh, it just doesn't make any sense, um, it, you know, that, that, that that's what they would do in their spare time. Uh, but yet that's what the archaeologists would say, um, you, you know, they, that, 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 to, to um, celebrate their Celtic heritage, they would build these these stone cairns and these stone uh, walls. Um, but it was a very hard life, and they, you know, they didn't have health insurance. If you got injured or broke a leg or, you know, smashed a hand, you were done. Your family was, was done. They had no way to, to live. So, um, yeah, very very hard life. And like you say, if you had to build one of these uh, large stone constructions, you'd be hard-pressed to do it. It would take a lot of... Uh, human energy, a lot of people, it would be like a civic project. You'd need a group of like-minded, uh, you know, self, uh, similarly motivated people to, um, to build these, these types of constructions. What's the message you really want to get across through this, Glenn? Well, in the Northeast here, Certainly the message is that these sites are threatened and they need to be protected because they're not recognized for what they truly are. So, um, you know, there's a, 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 a lot of uh, archaeologists and academics and scholars in the Northeast dismiss all these things. They Everything I'm talking about, they say, just didn't happen and couldn't have happened and the natives didn't do that. Um, so when development projects come along, um, usually these things don't get given the consideration that they should. So it's very important that when people find these things or come across them, that they understand them in the proper context so that they get the protection that they're uh, deserving. And um, that means working with local historical societies, with local town boards and planning boards when these things are threatened to get the experts in um, from the state, uh, from the federal authorities, because if you find the right people, um, they will understand these for what they are. And what it takes is consulting with and um, contacting tribal historic preservation officers, people related to the tribes who have the responsibility to identify and protect these sites. And they will. They just need to be notified. Glenn, what's coming up for you next? Uh, well, through Overlook Mountain Center, we do a monthly hike uh, to different sites in the Catskills. People can contact us through overlookmountain.org. We've got one coming up. Um, uh, where are we? It's April, almost May. Yeah, so I think it's May 21st. Uh, they're usually on a Saturday or Sunday, four hours long. Um, 
I also have a program coming up at the Star Library in early June in Rhine, uh, Rhinebeck, or is it, I'm sorry, Red Hook, New York. Uh, I'll be giving a talk there on archaeoastronomy and landscape archaeology in our region. And I do that throughout the year, and you can find out about that usually through overlookmountain.org. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. Uh, it certainly was an entertaining conversation. Thanks for having me, Jeremy, and, and thanks uh, to your audience for listening and having an interest. Absolutely. And go check out the book. We've got it linked up at parabnormalradio.com because nobody really, uh, well, I think that there's no subject that we talk about on this program that, that doesn't fascinate. I have been accused of maybe talking about subjects that don't fascinate some people, but <laughs> this certainly was not one of those. And uh, we'll actually get into more of that later on in the program. Again, uh, Glenn's website, overlookmountain.org, and uh, the book, Spirits in Stone, The Secrets of Megalithic America. Well, we've got some time for you. Open lines, rest of the program, toll-free in North America. It's 855-790-8255. That's 855-790-8255. If you're outside North America, you can get in by calling 503-506-0396. And if you are, say, over on the other side of the world where it's the middle of the night, uh, so occasionally, uh, officially Sunday, uh, and, and you don't have long distance, you can get in through Skype. It's easy. Just go to ITP51, or if you're at parabnormalradio.com, just look for that Skype button and click it in, because the rest of the program, I want to hear from you. I also have, uh, well, a bit of uh, some discouraging news to share with you a little bit later on in the program. Uh yeah, we'll we'll save that for then. Uh, as far as what we talked about at the beginning of the program, the names that we've been discussing uh, over the course of time, as we've done, uh, you know, this show, um, have been reported by others. These aren't just Jeremy coming up with names and saying that these people have told stories. They've been on other shows. They've told those stories. They've come out themselves, and they have made their accounts public. The fact is there's not enough people doing this kind of show that is heard by as many people as it needs to be heard by in order for this information to start to sink in. There are people... There are people out there, friends, believe it or not, that are naive to this information. They think it doesn't exist. They don't care to believe it. And they want to discount every sort of argument otherwise. And, well, sometimes they start calling names. Yeah, sometimes people fight over these kinds of subjects because they just can't all get along. The fact of the matter is we are living in a time, we are living in an age where there is such movement like I have never before seen in my life on the UFO front. Now... Are these aliens and extraterrestrials who are piloting these craft? Are they our own craft? In the case of these pilots, military officials who have 
barked at the Navy for so many years that the Navy is now starting to classify this information. They are changing their guidelines for how they deal with this uh, information that is reported to them. They're starting to take it seriously. They have come to the realization that the people in which they, they employ who are telling them these stories are very smart people, and they have a lot to lose. And so why would they want to risk it all to say something that they know they didn't see? Why would they make something up? And the Navy is finally understanding this, that these are credible people who have seen incredible things. And it's about time they paid attention. And the more and more you have you know, reports like this, and that the Navy now has a patent out on a flying saucer, an advanced aircraft, that these pilots are having encounters with advanced aircraft. Is it possible that our own military is manufacturing these aircraft And that these aircraft that we're seeing are actually our own. It's sexy to say it is the aliens. It's the extraterrestrials. That they have something to do with it. That they're the ones behind it. That's sexy. But what if it's it's ours? What if it's our government, our military, the military-industrial complex, the New World Order? who, Who cares? who's really behind it, whether or not this is actually our own craft. A patent on a flying saucer. Why would we be manufacturing a craft that can reach such extreme speeds, that can uh, demonstrate some of the behavior like has been reported by numerous witnesses, military officials, pilots, and whatnot? Is it possible? Yes, it's possible that our government, that our military, that any one of these elite groups, these secret societies, could be behind it all. In fact, it is highly possible, in my opinion, if you ask me. 855-790-8255, toll free in North America. 503-506-0396 outside North America, and ITP51 on Skype. Highly probable, I would say, that this is going on underneath, uh, under our nose. And so when you have information that comes to light through Freedom of Information Act requests or FOIAs, and when you have conversations that pilots are having over the public airwaves, let's not forget who owns those the airwaves right we do we have the right to hear those communications as long as they don't impact national security if they were a threat to national security i am all for that information being censored suppressed but in no other case am i okay with that information being censored or suppressed Because I believe we can handle the truth. I think it's time we get the truth. And I think it's time that we give our fellow man the common courtesy 
to believe that they can handle the truth. And would it shatter everything that we know? Would it shatter religion? No, I don't think it would. And the reason I don't is because all religion is is supernatural, right? Has anybody ever seen God up up close and personal? No, it's a belief. It's a belief in something that enough people have manifested about that you take as truth. When we talk about this, it's no different. Credible people reporting what they have seen, documented evidence one after the other. It is now adding up. It is at a point where the time is now. And people, they are either going to continue to be naive and they are not going to pay attention to this information. They are, they're just, it's as if it did not happen to them. And they're going to continue living in their naive mind. Others will go, oh my gosh, why would these people come out and say this stuff? And it's not just, well, I said I saw this. We're talking video that goes along with this. We're talking about activity tracked on radar. We're talking about radar communications. All of it to me, you add it up, you put it in a bowl, you mix it up, that's what you get. In my opinion, you have testing going on in our airspace that is able to manipulate radar, that is able to literally appear and disappear on on command, literally. And you have the U.S. Navy patenting a flying saucer aircraft and finally getting serious about investigating this stuff. So does that just still not add up to anything 855-790-8255 toll free in north america 503-506-0396 outside north america and itp51 on skype i mentioned ty rogaway earlier in the program he does the uh blog the war zone over at the drive.com and uh, his post is going to be linked up if it isn't already at parabnormalradio.com, it's called What the Hell is Going on with UFOs in the Department of Defense? Uh, it's an exhaustive article. I highly recommend it. It's all of the information that you might need in one place. All of the reports that we've been talking about. The air traffic control audio. The interviews that have been done about it. Statements from military and otherwise organizations. Reports of the technology. Reports of the sightings. From pilots, from commanders, from witnesses. A few of those names we mentioned. Commander David Fravor. Kevin Day. Uh, there's a man by the name of Jason Turner and by the name of PJ Hughes Gary Voorhis these are just some of the names of people who are involved 
who have been involved in this, who continue to be involved in this. And in my point and in my opinion, they are credible. They're absolutely credible. Let's go to Jason in Arizona. You're on into the paranormal. Hello. Oh, hang on one second. Let's go to Daryl. Hi, Daryl. Hey, Jeremy. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Am I off base? Are you what? Am I off base? No, my goodness, not at all. I'm right behind you. I, I'm, I'm feeling. Well, I'm feeling you totally. Oh, I appreciate that. I think you're on the money. You're on. The money. I wasn't looking for I'm validation, like- but I just wanted to know if I'm if I'm just going out on a limb, or if others are starting to to realize as am I. I appreciate you actually discussing all of these things. Uh, I think it's important. I think all of you, all of you, everything you've been discussing so far is what's on all of our minds, as far as I'm concerned. You know, call it fringe, call it. I think it should be mainstream. And don't think your message isn't going out to people. You know, it doesn't take much to to get this spread. And uh, I do my best to spread it to my networks, and uh, hopefully they're big enough to spread around to other networks. So. Don't don't give up hope. You're gonna you're you're gonna be heard. Oh, you're I appre- gonna be- I appreciate that so much, Gerald. Yeah, I I don't I don't feel as if the information isn't getting out there. Um, I just kind of feel that the information isn't getting enough isn't getting to enough people, uh, and it's not changing the the public perception. Uh, really on a grand scale. I want to see that. I want to see that that lever kind of move to the right. You know, the public perception uh, gauge. Don't we all? But I think it's happening. It's happening slowly, but I think people are starting to wake right. up. I, I just feel like even wherever I go, you know, I'm I'm pretty friendly. I I talk to strangers and cab drivers and things like that, and they're never shocked when I bring up something a little fringe. You know, they're they're kind of right there, and they have an opinion, and they they've had an experience. You know, or they well, know somebody that has. So it's not as as taboo. I think as it has been. You know. Well, maybe like maybe it's, it's a common yeah. Maybe it's a combination of that and also that you know they're maybe they're worried about doing it uh, publicly. Like like you know I've I've had those conversations with people who will tell me you know one thing uh, in private and then in public they they say another thing. And so I I still think there's sure. that stigmatism. Sure. You know we need to destigmatize yes. uh, the UFOs. Yes. And I think we're on the we're on the right uh, track. I mean this stuff that that comes out of the Navy this week. And uh, and everything that's preceded it, and everything that will follow it, it's an exciting time to be living in. Very much so. I agree with you. Um, I was going to tell you a quick story. Um, I heard about this a reporter. I think he was from your network. What's his name? Ryan Gable. Let, yeah. Let's let's pause. And I hate to do it, but we are at the bottom of the hour. We'll come back with Daryl, who's in New York, and uh, she had a question about Ryan Gable. Uh, we'll come back with her right after. John Jeter and Paranormal News. I'm Jeremy Scott, traveling with you somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Hang tight, Daryl. Save your data and listen for free by calling 701-719-9703, courtesy of TalkStream Live.
tonight's episode is brought to you by Audible, with over 180,000 titles to choose from in every genre. Play them on your iPhone, Kindle, Android, and on more than 500 devices. Audible is offering you the opportunity to check out their service for free. When you go to audibletrial.com slash parabnormal, you'll get a free audiobook to download and a 30-day free trial. A-U-D-I-B-L-E trial.com slash parabnormal. Live nationwide, Saturdays 6 to 9 Pacific, 9 to midnight Eastern, into the paranormal. This is Paranormal News. I'm John Jeter. Scientists at the University of Chicago and Fermilab plan to trap and observe dark matter. Hmm, that sounds a little scary, folks. Using the 27-kilometer particle accelerator at CERN in Switzerland, the famed God particle, which is confirmed to exist in 2012, plays a big role in this. It seems to be responsible for giving other particles their mass. Researchers believe that there are some dark matter particles that we can interact with, and the God particle may act as a portal to the dark world, as in kaboom, folks. Professor Leon Dao Wang at the University of Chicago says, We know for sure there's a dark world out there, and there's more energy in it than there is in ours. I would agree with that. Ivy League scientists have found that navigating through a wormhole is possible, but it would be slower than traveling through space. Physics professor Daniel Jefferis of Harvard University says it takes longer to get through these wormholes than to go directly, so they're not very useful for space travel, he says. Jefferis, along with Harvard graduate student Ping Gao and research scientist Aaron Wall of Stanford University, postulate that wormholes could actually be transversed by light particles. The team are also behind a study on how it's possible we would be rescued from a black hole should we get sucked in there, man. Connect with the news at ParanormalRadio.com. I'm John Jeter, and this is Paranormal News, dude. For any of that, there's an infinite number of possible outcomes. Our choice is to determine which outcomes will follow. But there is a theory that all possibilities that can happen do happen in alternate quantum reality. Paranormal, where alien visitations make for another extraordinary Saturday night. All right, back to Daryl in New York, and uh, Ryan Gable, who was my guest uh, last week on the program, along with Clyde Lewis. Uh, what were you going to say, Daryl? Oh, no, I, you know, it was either Ryan Gable or maybe David Wilcock. One of these reporters went to Paris to investigate the, 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 the events that happened at the uh, Notre Dame. So they get into a taxi, you know, and they ask the cab driver, hey, how long did it take you guys to build uh, that uh, church, the, the, the Notre Dame? He says, oh, I don't know, like 200 years, you know. It's 200 years, that's a, that's a long time. They would have done it in maybe 50 years, you know. And they, they passed by the Arc de Triomphe. He said, well, how long did it take to build the Arc de Triomphe? Yeah. He says, oh, that uh, it took 12 years, you know, it's a special monument. 
this 12 years, boy, you guys are slow. Maybe we would have probably taken five years, you know? So they finally pass by the Eiffel Tower. And he says, hey, what is that there? And the cab driver says, I don't know. It was not here yesterday. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, I, that, I was, yeah, so that <laughs> explains, you know, what we're talking about. That, you know, this, right. here one day, gone the next, or in this case, exactly. not here one day and here the next. I know, it's, it's a shame, it's such a shame about the, the monument being destroyed. It's not the first monument, unfortunately. Uh, they, they ruined um, Petra, the ruins in um, Jordan, which was magnificent, you know? It's a shame well, like we're seeing only things getting destroyed for no apparent reason, you know? Well, maybe the, maybe the ghosts were mad. I don't know, Daryl. I don't know. It's, it's a shame, you know? I wonder if they're the trying to really bury history, you know? And they might have been uncovering something about that church. If you uh, were reading this fellow, Funicular, Funicular, you have to look him up. He was a man that was almost as prophetic as uh, Notre Dame, you know. And he had the secret of the churches, secret of all the Iglises in Europe. And there was some kind of, like, hidden message in, this, in those churches. You have to ask, um, you know who you should ask is um, Gigi. Gigi from Shift Happens. Okay. He knows a lot about this subject. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, something to be uh, looked upon. Uh, there was a guest he was supposed to have that was going to discuss a uh, funicular. Who was a fellow that might, like, might still even be alive, you know, that nobody really knows his, uh, you know, his uh, origin or, you know, his real name. He used pseudonyms to write his uh, literature, but he had some codes that were you know, hidden in the churches in Europe. And I wonder if Notre Dame probably was one of the biggest ones, and if they were going about to uncover some kind of, cover, you know, secret of the, you know, universe or something like that. But um, talk to Gigi about that. It's definitely worth investigating. Hey, thanks for the suggestion. I'll do, I'll do that. And, Daryl, you have a, you have a uh, good evening. Thanks for calling in. Keep up the great work, Jeremy. I appreciate that so much. Let's go to Dave in Arizona on Into the Paranormal. Hi, Dave. Hi, how are you? You sound so subdued. Oh, mate, well, it's the weekend, and I work all week, and it's one of those rare nights where so it's, uh, it's like, not ready to round, going crazy. So Kickback's kind of relaxing kind of a night, huh? Yeah, and I get to sit here and look through my old notes, and I had compiled a list of military sightings uh, just pertaining to Shemya, uh, Alaska, the Air Force Base out there, Shemya um, Air Force Base in Alaska. Uh, over what time, Dave? Time um, primarily the year 1977 to 78, but I do kind of have a chronological timeline starting in 1948. It appears, that's just from my research, I'm readers digesting a lot of things because some of the... Excuse me. Sightings I've been able to pull have been first-hand accounts from the military veterans themselves, and these were found back in 2010 on a lot of Shemya veteran message boards. And a lot of these were just mentioned in jest, uh, and then some of them, um, people, uh, veterans took up two or three pages telling their you know stories and. 
there was one that I found that coincided with about two or three guys that all had met up kind of on the board to tell their story or their version of the one that one of them that happened. And I had a friend of mine who was stationed uh, at the same time on Shemi Air Force Base in 1977. So all these guys, I've, I've been trying to get them sort of together and, 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 and talk about their experiences, but it's been over a decade. And, and let me tell you, when you're compiling information and, 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 and talking and doing emails, you know, at first three or four of these guys, you know, were really into it and, and wanted to talk and were giving me information. And then suddenly they would just not talk anymore or not return emails. Uh, but still obtaining permission to use because I told them what I was doing. So this whole thing, I don't know if I ever do a book on it or not, but it's, but these are just, I'm sorry if I'm rambling, <laughs> but these information, you know, these are hidden nuggets of gold. Like two guys were stationed over at Shemya and they forwarded every UFO report case over to Wright Patterson. And so Wright Patterson has a connection to Shemi Air Force Base. Um, specifically, I'll get into the meat of the of, of the call. My buddy had um, not only witnessed UFOs flying and taking off from Shemia, he actually interacted with, I guess you would say, alien beings. Uh, speaking to them as I'm speaking to you now, um, he called one of them baritone because he had a baritone voice. And he said that, uh, I said, well, how did you meet, how did that happen? And he said he was on his day off. He was out there on the island looking for some wood to, uh, you know, make a project out of, as they usually did uh, on their downtime. And he said he got dizzy and he, and he passed out. And he woke up in uh, one of the airplane hangars on the couch. And when he, he sits up and when he sits up, he sees, he sees a, a, it wasn't a gray, uh, in his words, it was a pale, translucent um, alien. He says, think of him as a, he says, think of a human albino, the whitest human albino you can think of. He says, now imagine you could see every single vein in an albino human, from the torso, the head, the face, everything. He says, this is what they looked like. No scales on the skin except for scales on the top of the head. He said their eyes were round and large, about the double size of ours. They were blue like a husky dog's, and they stink really horribly. So basically, and that was the first time that he saw them. And he and I said, well, what was your reaction? I mean, I can, can't, can't, can't imagine that you, you know, like, hey, you guys aren't from around here. He says, well, after, he said, yeah, I woke up, and I said, who in the hell, who and what the hell are you, and what happened? And he said, very in plain English, we saved your life. We were coming in for a landing. You were too close to the magnetic field, and we didn't want to vaporize you or more or less or, you know, have an accident happen. Uh, so we saved you, and we brought you in here. Um, through all this happened, he thinks this whole ordeal interacting with these two aliens happened throughout the course of the afternoon. In reality, what happened, it was the course of, uh, I think, three days. And when he finally returned uh, outside after what he thought was a day of interacting with these guys, you know, it's getting kind of late, better get back, don't want to get in trouble kind of thing, the, one of the security police trucks had picked him up. 
and had asked where where he had, he had been. And he said, well, I just left this morning to go, you know, gather wood and just, you know, making a desk and stuff. And he says, no, man, you've been gone for three days. Took him right to General's office. It was General Boswell. And I did confirm General Boswell was there at this time frame. Um, and he said there was also uh, a man in black. He was military, he said, but he wore an all-black suit. He had a very unusual-looking tie on. He said that, He said there was something about that tie. He said these guys are very uh, crafty in their interrogation. And basically the general asked him where he had been. So he recounted the accounts of the day. And uh, he says, you don't remember getting in a, in, a, in a disc and taking off and leaving? And he said, I didn't leave. I've been in the hangar all day. He says, no, you were witnessed by, you know, uh, Air Force personnel and blah, 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 getting in a craft and taking off, and you've been gone for three days. And he was really irate. And, and Chris couldn't remember any of it. He says, no, consciously, Chris remembered being gone, just not even gone. You know, in in the hangar, that's the only portion he remembered was when he woke up in the hangar, and then from then on, you turn that down a little bit. So uh, he's never undergone regression or anything like that to find out what's happened in that missing time. And the only time he's ever been on the air about it, he uh, had gotten harassed and his uh, computer attacked and. Um, all sorts of harassing phone calls and threatening letters and things. No uh, visits from the men in black, though? Well, no. I mean, whoever harassed him, this is when we went on the air in 2015 with John Wells, and he told the story out of his mouth. Uh, It was after that that he was harassed. But up until that point, he had never told anybody publicly about the story. And um, he told me in 2010... So I was like, well, maybe I'll write a book on it or maybe I'll, you know, contact some people. And I've contacted various investigators, some very well-known over the years, and they, they don't care. And I, and, I, and I don't want to say that. It's like I've realized who the gatekeepers are. I've realized who the guys are that really would go after. They only go after certain information that you can go, mm, could be. When you get into a case like Chris's, when you sit down, and you talk to him, and then you read the emails to him because, or from him to me, and, and things like that. Uh, the conversations that they get into are very. I mean, they talked about the pyramids. They talked about uh, one of the things that Baritone said is, "You guys built these things, and and you guys have been meaning the human race has been flying these machines for about ten thousand years." He says the rich have been building. <laughs> building these flying machines and your governments of the world and your religious leaders have known about them. He says, if you look at the Sphinx, there's the schematics. He says, they show you the, the rocket right there, but yet they deny it in plain sight. And, uh, so that was uh, just some of the conversations that he had told well, me. Dave, what do you, what do you think is going on with all this stuff coming out of the Navy? I mean, and the, well, and the timing of these it. Guys have already, these guys have already known. They've already known, so it's it's new to the people because they haven't hasn't come out this way, perhaps, or they're finally admitting it in a certain way. Um, you, you know, I think very very few people in the military actually know what's going on. I think that when you get ratings out there, maybe a lot of them, they really don't know what they are. 
because they don't have clearance for it. But there are very few select because Shemi approves it. And I don't, and plus with the other Shemi veteran sightings, this is the only one, well, there were two other men with Chris during another time when they encountered the two aliens on Shemia. There were more, but two they specifically came in contact with. And after that, they, re, they, they stationed the other guys somewhere else. And before they stationed them somewhere else, they refused to speak with Chris or even acknowledge his existence. Chris said 10 years after he got out of the military, he tried to contact one of them to talk about what had happened. And he denied ever being on Shemia and told Chris never to contact him ever again. Well, that's the problem and, uh, is because there's not record of this stuff. Nobody ever takes the report. Now they're going to start, you know, taking these reports, and you know somebody's eventually going to, you know, have a record their, of it. This is their way of disclosure. This is their way of disclosure. Here, what's to stop them from saying, "Hey, we got this new report from, uh, you know, Armpit, Wyoming, that says, uh, you know, uh, came down, blah blah blah." Uh, I bet you're going to start declassifying old stuff. Look at all the stuff that Robert Bigelow here has bought, all the MUFON files. That means he bought my sighting that I reported in 97 and whatever else. That's my information, and he's making money off that. That, I, that is what I think people are angry about, okay? Where are they going to get these, these, these TV shows for the new uh, Academy to the Stars or to the Stars Academy? <laughs> you know, where are they going to get the, the cases from? Where are they going to pull them out of the air? You know, you got you have to have a back catalog or something, and I think this is probably what they might use. I could be this is just a shot in the dark because I'm not really the, the the power control group has changed in the UFO community. It's not what it once was. It's not Dr. Uh, Carla Turner anymore. If you're familiar with her work, and I think she's the closest one out of them all out of out of the last thirty years. Out of all the researchers, I think she's probably the, the closest one who had it. I think it's a combination of real ET and also the military doing certain things and interrogating, you know, abductees as well. Yeah, Sorry, it, I'm long-winded. But. No, no. <laughs> so, what do you think are the are the chances that that the aircraft that these pilots are seeing um, are from are ours? Well, they're 100% ours if, if what Baritone relayed to Chris is true. And by Chris's own words, he says, I even got a tour in one of the craft by a human pilot. Then if, and, and if they are ours, why would the military need to document that? They would already have record of them being ours. Not everybody knows. Here again, not everybody knows that the department, the security is compartmentalized. Like I said... That is my guess. That's what it appeared to be on Shemya. Um, very few knew, because Chris had blatantly asked Baritone, what's your function? What do you do? And, and he said, I'm an airman just like you. I have my orders. He says, what are your orders? He says, I'm not classified to tell you. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he says, basically, I saved you because I didn't want to kill you. I didn't want to report to Boswell of why you died. And Chris was kind of taken aback. He says, basically, we hate you. We hate humans. And it got very... It, it got it got the conversation got so intense that one of the other aliens started ranting and raving and threatening Chris, and at another point, um, picked him up and threw him into a a, a pile of uh, wooden pallets. 
And he said, you know, if it wasn't for Baritone, he would have ripped me to shred. Pretty much. Yeah. So... I, I'm I'm watering down a lot of it, and I think that's why when people get into my story and they read the information, they read his report, and they read his eyewitness account, it blows their mind. They they can't handle it. And I think if any of that, even if an inkling of what is it, that is true, <laughs> maybe that's why they'll never come out with disclosure, or they're doing soft disclosure like they are now. Yeah, Dave, thank you so much for the call, and he brings up a great point. Well, it it actually it actually ties into what I'm about to tell you, friends. Um, there are people out there who you know who are not open to this information, and you know don't want it getting out there, and uh, so it gets suppressed, and then you know people die with this information, and it never does get released, and then you have people who are trying to get the information out and they are suppressed or censored um, and told, no, we don't want that information getting out. We have sensitive ears and and we can't handle it. So please don't speak about that. I actually had an experience, friends, that I, ha- I want to tell you about here uh, that in which I was censored. That's right. I was censored, friends. I I wrote up some notes just so I make sure I get it all in. So let's try to run through this here. Um, And then maybe I'll have some additional thoughts afterwards. There's a first time for everything. Today it was being censored off a podcast. I was invited to appear on a show to remain unnamed and recorded the episode a few weeks ago. It was scheduled to air this week until I got this email from one of the hosts. It says, we have decided not to air your episode. There wasn't enough content that we felt would interest our audience. And the vibration of the whole Momo story, which we talked about heavily with Clyde Lewis and Ryan Gable last week, the vibration of the whole Momo story was too low and not something we are willing to share. I'm not quite sure what that last part means. The vibration of the whole Momo story was too low. Well, I'll expand upon that (laughs) a little bit later on. Uh, As far as not something they wanted to share, to me that sounds very plain, very simple. Censorship. The definition of censorship states, the suppression or prohibition of any material considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. To the point of there wasn't enough content that we felt would interest our audience. So you have folks who are who are, are being the ultimate determination of what gets on the air. I, I had no clue what Daryl was going to call or talk about. Or what Dave was going to call and talk about. And quite frankly, when we talk to guests, we have an inkling of what they're going to talk about, but sometimes they they go in a direction in which we don't anticipate. Does it mean because we didn't anticipate or we didn't prepare for it or we're not necessarily um, fully on board with it that we tell them 
you know, not to talk about it or we we edit it out of our podcast or we don't include it in the show. So as far as there not being enough content and not being of interest to the audience, that is subjective. And if you weren't interested in the topic that I was going to talk about, then why didn't you prepare and bring a topic of your own? You know, usually when I ask a guest if they want to come on the program, I give them an idea of what we want to talk about, whether it's their latest book, whether it's I want them to react to a news story because I know they have some experience about it. That's part of what you do when you set up a guest to come on the program. Well, when I first asked them how they had heard about me and they said, not sure. They're not sure. They, they're not sure how they had heard about me, yet they want to have me on the program. That should have been my first clue, that they didn't want to do any research. The show host wanted to wing it. And I mentioned Momo during our pre-show chat as one possible topic. Well, it was an okay topic at that point, and when I brought it up on the air, they continued to ask questions about it, which is usually indicative that those you are speaking with are interested and are asking those questions because they want to know more about it. Rather than listen to some of my shows and pick an alternative topic if they weren't interested in that, even though they continued to ask questions about it, well, they allowed me to do the work of suggesting a topic at showtime, then rolling with it, expressing interest in it, and then ultimately censoring the topic. Another email from a host states, I will let, uh, name to be left out, explain why we feel uncomfortable about airing the Momo part, which was actually very interesting. Well, I know it was because I was talking about it and it was interesting. Yet you're telling me that it was evasive and it was too general. (laughs) So which is it? But something has happened that we agreed is in everyone's best interest listening to us. Not to be exposed to that. We just can't in good conscience expose our audience to it. Oh, my God. We cannot handle the truth. We are just pitiful people here. We're going to melt like a marshmallow because we cannot handle the truth. And then I get this message. I received a very clear message through the light language that I channel not to share this episode. Now, I don't even know if that's legit. You want to talk about whether what I'm talking about is legit or not? Through a light language. What, what I don't know what that is. It says, the negative energy around the Momo doll is best not shared. My guides were clear that I was not to share it. Had I realized the impact of the Momo energy, I wouldn't have continued with the conversation. So we we are already in agreement that it has an energy attached to it. They tell me that I've been evasive and I've been too general and I've lacked content. Now I gave them some content. It just happened to be it wasn't content that they did they didn't want to hear about. They didn't want to prepare a topic. So I started talking about people who have come up with wild stories who have sacrificed those careers like we've talked about tonight to come forward like those names i mentioned earlier like bob lazar 
By the way, his business was just raided by the FBI. And when I provide names and I provide details, I, I can't understand how that's being evasive and how it's being too general. It further demonstrated to me that those folks have an agenda. They were not open to anything but their perspective. And you see, that's dangerous, friends. It's dangerous Not that someone doesn't want to be open to your perspective, but it's dangerous when someone is making the ultimate decision on what they subject others to, right? They had an agenda. They didn't want to hear what I had to say. I have never once said that I'm right about anything, but I do have a pretty good idea of what might be going on because I have done more than 300 shows on these subjects. And I feel that I do have a responsibility to inform you about whatever topic it is that we discuss. As I always say, you're encouraged to decide for yourself. But who in their right mind thinks that sharing something as a PSA to perhaps save lives and personal harm is not worth the risk? The fact that they admit it has an energy attached to it and that they felt that energy through the power of my voice to their ears. The fact that they felt that energy proves the point that it is real. But they would still rather not inform their listeners. The fact of the matter is the mainstream media is not going to inform you. There are some people when they experience these paranormal experiences, they ignore it, even when it happens to them. The definition of naive, showing a lack of experience, wisdom, or judgment. Believe it or not, friends, there are still people out there who cannot handle the truth. Remember, Momo doesn't forget. Momo never forgets. And I'll talk to you tomorrow night on my Sunday special with messages from loved ones who have passed, helping spirits cross into the light, and one family's extraordinary experiences with the deceased. Sunday at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. Until then, Jeremy Scott, Night Night Friends. Congrats on going to college. Now the fun begins. Setting up your dorm, your apartment, your space. Make it yours. Bed Bath & Beyond makes it easy. Sign up now for our college savings pass. Get 20% off your entire purchase every time you shop through September 30th. 20% off everything. Hey, we've even got a checklist for that. You can order near home and pick it all up near campus. Sign up now at your nearest Bed Bath & Beyond or bedbathandbeyond.com and make college yours. With the new Chevy Silverado, you might be driving in this. But with the Silverado's redesigned interior and large infotainment screens, it'll feel more like this. Introducing the new 2022 Chevy Silverado. Find new upgrades. Find new roads. Chevrolet. Thank you for supporting our advertisers. It keeps the show free for everyone. This statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No offense, but are you a little fat? 
when you look in the mirror? How do you like to learn the secret to losing three to five pounds a week without joining the gym or going through any crazy diets? It's called Body Sculpt RX. For the last two decades, we've helped countless people lose thousands of pounds. And now, it's your turn. Learn how to lose weight with one simple phone call and no prescription needed. You'll see an amazing difference in a matter of days. Don't believe us? We'll offer you a risk-free money-back guarantee. So if you're ready to start losing weight, call right now and get a free month supply with your first order of Body Sculpt RX. Call now. You have nothing to lose but the pounds. 800-395-4207. 800-395-4207. 800-395-4207. That's 800-395-4207. You've heard me talking about My Patriot Supply for a while, and things aren't getting any easier. From global conflicts and unstable supply chains, when shelves run on empty, you don't have to panic. Choose peace of mind with their three-month emergency food supply to keep your shelves and your stomach full. In an emergency, you won't have the time, resources, and ingredients to prepare your meals in the way you're used to. But you can get a leg up with My Patriot Supply. It's a three-month emergency food supply. You don't have to skimp. It's ready when you are. It's disaster-proof. And no food boredom here. 20-plus flavorful food and drink varieties. My Patriot Supply is offering a special deal for Into the Parabnormal listeners when you go to parabnormalradio.com slash food. Get your My Patriot Supply today from parabnormalradio.com slash food. That's parabnormalradio.com slash food. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 